This is Scott Richmond, the director for New York and New Jersey for ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, coming to you from the front lines. ADL is on the front line every day, fighting anti-Semitism and hate, and this show brings that to you from ADL's headquarters in New York. If there were ever a front line, it is Israel in the wake of the barbaric atrocities committed by the Hamas terrorist group on October 7th. Since that terrible day, I've heard so much misinformation about the history of the conflict, the players, the geography, and so on. To set the record straight, I reached out to my friend and colleague, ADL Deputy National Director Kenny Jacobson. He has worked for ADL for more than 50 years and lived much of the history that is being discussed. We decided to do a webinar during which I would ask him these basic questions. When more than 1,000 people registered within a few days, I knew that this struck a chord. His clear answers and great insight were very well received, and I was determined to give this a broader audience. So I decided to put a two-part, slightly edited version of this discussion out as a podcast. I released part one a few weeks ago. Now let's jump right into part two of this conversation. Let's talk about the United States. You wrote a blog for the Times of Israel last week in which you asked if U.S. support for Israel is in our interest. Uh, So the question is, is it? And if so, which I think the answer is yes, uh, why? Why is it in the U.S. interest? First of all, historically, I don't think the American Jewish community has been as successful in describing why support for Israel is in American interest as we have been in the moral argument that Israel is a democracy and Israel shares common values. But the person who, and I ironically, I wrote this before Henry Kissinger died. I actually wrote it about a week before he died. And I raised that because my piece was inspired by him. He he wrote in his two-volume memoir, which, by the way, are among the most brilliant things I've ever read in my life. He explained why American support for Israel was in our interest. Now, he was talking about the era of the Soviet Union and the Cold War, but I applied it to what's going on. And what he argued was the following. He said, you know, the basic argument among many in the State Department, as in Brzezinski, for example, would argue that the Arabs, because of the American support for Israel moved towards the Soviet side. Now, the, the Soviet Union gained tremendous support in the Middle East because America supported Israel. You know, that became like a conventional wisdom. We support Israel, we lose with the Arab world. Kissinger argued very much against that. He said, look, the Middle East is divided between what he called the radicals and the moderates. The radicals were all supported by the Soviet Union, including Syria and Iraq. And he said, when the radicals are in conflict with Israel, in a, and Egypt, by the way, in the old days was also part of the radicals under Nasser, they were supported by, he said, when those countries are in conflict with Israel, it is vital that we, the Americans, make sure the Israelis win those struggles and we need to support Israel because the moderates are watching very closely, the moderates being Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, Jordan, they're watching very closely where the tide is moving. If if it's moving in the Soviet direction, they will move over to the Soviet Union. But if the American-supported Israelis are able to defeat the radicals, they will stay and they will move towards the West. And I think that applies very much today with regard to Iran. A lot of the Arab states are watching. They're fearful of Iran 
But if they don't think the Americans and the Israelis are going to be strong and they're really going to be vulnerable, they'd be very tempted to pacify and appease the Iranians. And therefore, it's vital that first Israel win this war and secondly, that the United States support Israel. So I think that's the the basic argument, and I think it has a lot of validity to it. There's a lot of manifestations of this war in, in this country, one of which is a call for ceasefire. So is calling for a ceasefire more than just calling for an end to war? The basic social contract between Israel's government and the people of Israel was undermined dramatically on that day. Had the Zionist movement really developed at the end of the 19th century because of the pogroms in Eastern Europe, and Jews were being attacked all over Russia and elsewhere, and basically Zionism promised that once you have a state, none of this will ever happen again. And on October 7th, that whole thing was put into question. And so for Israel and the people of Israel, and that's why there's so much unity in the country, they understand that in order to restore the social contract, they need to show that Hamas will be defeated and that the, the threat of future attacks like this on Israel, which Hamas has proudly proclaimed they intend to do, will no longer be possible. And so the answer is a ceasefire would allow Hamas to stay alive, to, to do this somewhere in the future, and to guarantee that not only will more Israeli lives be lost, but more Palestinian lives will be put in jeopardy. And so a ceasefire, in my view, is a completely immoral position. That doesn't mean that you can't ask of Israel to do take more care with civilian casualties and the like. But any sense of, of morality and going forward to any hope for any kind of peace agreement, because as long as Hamas is a dominant factor, there is no hope whatsoever of reaching any kind of an agreement or a two-state solution. So it is both strategic and moral, and a ceasefire, in my view, is fundamentally an immoral thing that Israel, if it's going to get continue to get the support of its population, cannot abide by. Or what about calls for an intifada? Can you tell us what that really means? Well, it's really interesting because, you know, there were two intifadas. The first one broke out in December 1987, and the second one broke out right after the, the collapse of the Camp David meeting of, of Ehud Barak, Bill Clinton, and Yasser Arafat. The first intifada was a little complicated because there was violence, but it wasn't the most extreme violence. And it had elements of a protest, but it, and by the way, it divided the Israeli public because people on the left and the center felt that, uh, well, well, even some would say, what do you expect from the Palestinians when Yitzhak Shamir, who was prime minister, wasn't offering them? So the Israeli public was actually quite... The second intifada took place right after Ehud Barak and Bill Clinton offered Yasser Arafat the, the perfect opportunity to establish a Palestinian state. And instead, they rejected it and turned to the most violent kind of thing, the... Uh, the suicide bombs that we saw for many years that really turned Israeli society into a very different mode. So the term intifada has now, particularly because of the second one, is, is seen as a precursor to, in many ways, to what Hamas did on October 7th. Then the question is, what if people outside of Israel are using that term? 
what is it that they have in mind? And I think, I think when we hear people calling for an intifada against the Jews around the world, that is seen as just a, an anti-Semitic uh, violent threat against Jewish things. So the answer is the intifada, whatever it originally was, sort of so-called resistance, has turned into a phrase that's pretty equivalent to uh, the terrorism that happened on October 7th. There's an interesting question that's been asked in response to your last answer. There's concern that for Israel to actually, quote, win, meaning, you know, not not give in to a ceasefire, it will end up losing world support. How do you respond to that? Look, Israel's got a bunch of difficult choices. The first difficult choice is in its two primary purposes of the war, which is to defeat Hamas and free the hostages. Even though the Israeli government continues to try to make the argument that the only way the hostages will be freed is if Israel really wins this war, for a lot of people that doesn't seem to be so logical. We will see how that, how that uh, plays out. Um, but uh, there is no doubt that, and we knew it was gonna happen, that uh, as time went on, the pressures on Israel uh, because of civilian casualties, or at least the report about civilian casualties, will will take its toll on Israel. And even and the Biden administration overall has been terrific, particularly considering the many questions that have arisen within Biden's Democratic Party about our support for Israel. He has stood with Israel largely, but now we're seeing some erosion of that, and they're feeling the pressure. And uh, yes, on the one hand, no doubt there will be some elements that will turn against Israel because of, of the devastation in Gaza. On the other hand, as I said earlier, if Israel doesn't win it, there are so many bad consequences, including the belief in the Arab world that instead of Israel being here to stay, that maybe uh, the more destructive side of rejectionism will turn out. So I don't envy the Israelis and the decision-making uh, that they, there are so many factors going into it. And we will see, I mean, obviously the quicker they can uh, declare victory, uh, it will be the better. But uh, I think, you know, they have to convince the Israeli public that they've really accomplished what they say. You can't play politics with this. The public will know whether they really are going to feel safe going forward or whether, in fact, we're going to see other things like this in the future. I want to ask you something that is troubling, uh, which is the fact that often in this country, people are seeing this conflict through a racial justice lens, seeing this through the idea of the Israelis being the white oppressors of brown Palestinians. That, of course, is wrong, but tell us why. Yeah, well, first of all, Israelis are not simply white. Not only are they Jewish, which has its own minority status, but there are so many Israelis who would consider themselves people of color, people, the Spardim, who came from other Middle Eastern countries are not exactly what we'd say simply white or anything. So uh, um, the fact that Jews have lived in the Middle East, as I said earlier, for millennia uh, is, is, is about you know, a different diversity of the Jewish uh, population. So those assumptions in themselves are, are problematic and they, they reek of, of 
certain kind of stereotyping about Jews and Jewish life and seeing Jews only through the lens of Western colonialism rather than the, the historic connection of the Jewish people uh, to the land of Israel. But more significantly, it, if, in order to do this and to compare it, you have to, you, you have to first of all deny a fundamental right of the Jewish people to have a home in their thing. And you also have to simply ignore the many times that Israel has offered the Palestinians the chance to build their own state. You know, Abba Iban famously once said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And whether you talk about 48 where they could have had a state, or we talk about the Oslo Accords where they could have, or, or the Barack, uh, Ehud Barak Bill Clinton offer, or, or Ehud Olmert in 2008, there were so many opportunities. Again, I'm not suggesting that Israel should Israel shouldn't do more. I would like to see Israel take initiatives towards peace again, not because I think the Palestinians are ready for it, but I think it's just the right thing for Israel to do, but simply to uh, categorize this to some kind of racist state or racist thing is seen to me is both to distort the nature of the Jewish people and to distort the history of the region. Also, this sort of idea of, of what exists in this country, systemic racism, it's not as if this minority population in this country is trying to kill the, yeah. the majority population in this country. This is a very, very different dynamic here. Yeah. Talk to us about indigeneity, the idea of Jews being indigenous to the land of Israel. What does that mean? When I, I hear the phrase that Israel is a settler colonial state and it's part of Western colonialism, in order to take that position, you have to simply deny Jewish history for several thousand years. Again, you have to go back to the founding of the Jewish people. The founding of the Jewish people is intimately connected to the land of Israel. You can't talk about the Jewish religion or the Jewish nation without talking about the connection to the land. And then, of course, with the destruction of the Second Temple and the exile. So for 2,000 years, Jews were living in exile, even though many Jews continued to live in the Holy Land in Palestine. But the simple fact is for any Jewish person who has any connection to Judaism and religion, they know that every prayer, three times a day, Jews pray. And so many of the prayers are about the connection and the return to Zion. When at a Jewish weddings, so you just had a wonderful wedding of your, of your son, you know, the breaking of the glass in this happy, happy occasion and moment is a reflection of the fact that even in the happiest of moments, Jews remember the exile from Jerusalem and to recall that connection. The idea that Jews are sort of outsiders who are the settlers and colonialists is simply in my view, an anti-Semitic thing, because it simply denies the whole history of the Jewish people and its connection to the land of Israel. My understanding is that since the founding of the Jewish people, there have been dozens of groups that have ruled over this land. Uh, and through all of it, Jews were either a minority or a majority in the population, but sort of never quite left. And even leading up to modern times, where the Ottomans, followed by the British. This is sort of a, a complicated history here, which which no, didn't involve sovereignty yeah. of, of groups of people that we, we look to today. 
there definitely has been the Jewish presence, but the question that's often asked is if, if, if Israel and the land of the Holy Land meant so much to the Jews, why didn't they start a mass movement earlier on to big? Now, first of all, there was no Jewish army or anyone to take over from either the Ottomans or the Christians who ruled. But beyond that, the influence of religion was very strong. You know, we see today these, I don't know if your people see it, it's just so stark, these pro-Palestinian demonstrations and you see people with payas and beards right up in front. These are the so-called Nature Carta. These are Jews who reject Zionism and say it goes against the religion. Now, today, of course, they're viewed as extreme and outside, but the truth is over the centuries, the Jews, partly because they had no real power to change, change the situation, but the Jewish religion argued that there shouldn't be a, a, a Jewish control in, in Palestine, in Israel, until the Messiah comes. And this is sort of the main religious thing. Of course, once the, the 19th century appeared and anti-Semitism was spreading and nationalism became a thing and the movement to return the Jews, to actually take all of those ideas and emotions and religious prayers that every day for thousands of years, Jews prayed to return to Zion, suddenly became a possibility and a reality. So, you know, uh, this, is, this is the truth of the Jewish religion. It's not merely that there were Jews living there, but the Jews always were connected to the land of Israel as the real hope for the future. That's why Hatikva is the real the national anthem. It's a hope for the, for the return to the land. So then let's talk about the founding of the state. You've got this group of people, indigenous people, who are trying to found the state, but by what right did they establish the state? What gave them the right to do that in 1948? Well, first of all, the, the Zionist movement, again, which emerged at the end of the 19th century and then started to say, again, as I said just a minute ago, that we have this connection to the land of Israel and it's time to return and, and to do that. And so what happened over the next 40 years is one of the great tragedies, of course, is that uh, Zionism didn't turn out to be completely successful until 1948. And of course, only a few years earlier was a, the murder of 6 million Jews. And there's a whole question, some don't feel it would have worked out that way, but had there been a Jewish state 20 years earlier, maybe the, the destruction of European uh, Jewry wouldn't have happened. But after the Holocaust, uh, the pressure began to mount that, you know, something's got to be done. Look what happened to the Jewish people. And so the United Nations, after the British mandate ended, the United Nations took up the issue. And in uh, November 29th, 1947, there was a historic vote to partition the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, into two states, as I said earlier, an Arab Palestinian state and a Jewish Israeli state. So based on that November 29th resolution, uh, Israel in May 14th, 1948, declared its independence based on that. And then immediately uh, Arab armies invaded Israel in an effort to destroy it. And thank God we're not successful. So obviously sanctioned by the United Nations to create a country, uh, a Jewish and again, nation. the Palestinians could have had a state. Right they could there. have as well, right. 
But there were precursors to that. There was the San Remo Agreement. There was obviously the declaration by the British that they would carve out this territory for the Jews. So really, in terms of a, of a legal construct, uh, there seems to be real foundation here. Yeah, for sure. And there were efforts in the late 30s to try to appeal commission, try to uh, create that two-state solution that we've been talking about ever since. And they met before the outbreak of World War II to try to create two states. And there was all kinds of opposition from the British and others. Uh, and it was only after the war, because both because people had witnessed what happened to the Jewish people, and also because the British finally got disgusted and turned it over to the United Nations. But the point is that Zionism was not some artificial construct. As I said, it was the connection to the Jewish people. And then when people were settling in Israel, it was really the realization of thousands of years of return to the Holy Land. So I'm trying to get to a point here because the question of sovereignty, how a country is created, how a country is declared, how others recognize that as a country, these are all important questions. And by what right does the U.S. exist as a country? By what right does Argentina or Canada or Mexico or these other places exist as a country? By what right were they declared? First of all, almost every nation needs to have a strong military in order to, so there always are people who will contest the legitimacy of this or that. The big lesson of the Holocaust was that the Jewish people could never again afford to be powerless. The great disaster of the murder of six million was that you had this demonic racist regime in Germany and the Jews were completely helpless. Not only no army, but no countries would take them in and the like. So when the concept of Zionism became realized through the United Nations and was accepted, thank God Israel had enough, enough force. But you're saying, I mean, look, I, I think we should be beyond these questions. And again, I come back to what I said earlier. We're having these conversations now because people are de trying to delegitimize Israel from the river to the sea at a time only because of one reason they're all this coming up, because they see Israeli vulnerability because of October 7th. And because, as I said earlier, the Arab world was moving towards normalization of Israel. It wasn't only what Egypt and Jordan did to sign peace treaties. The UAE and Bahrain and even Saudi Arabia were talking about treating Israel like any normal country, you know. So delegitimization was off the table until October 7th. And now it's coming back with a vengeance. So in my view, the delegitimization argument should, should not be legitimized at all. You want to have discussions about Israeli policy, about the Israeli-Palestinian, all that is legitimate. But once you just simply deny the right of the Jewish people to a home in their historic land, I think you're then getting into things that I would call anti-Semitism. You've lived through much of this history, and I want to ask you a, a very fundamental question, which is, you, you may remember a time, uh, maybe not before the state, but as the state was was very, very young, and you remember a time in this country, how important is the safety and security of Israel to the safety and security of Jews in Huntington, in Teaneck, in White Plains? Yeah, there have been many discussions about that over the years. On the one hand, 
uh, sometimes people say, you know, every time Israel's in a war with the Hamas or the, or the Arab world, anti-Semitism grows. So how can you claim that Israel is beneficial to Jews when anti-Semitism arises, quote unquote, because of Israeli activity? And I think there's a, a little bit of a point there, but the far more significant point is that it's no mere coincidence that Jewish life in America took off at a time when Israel was seen as a really successful state, particularly after the Six Day War, when Israel was sort of viewed in such positive terms, it provided tremendous source of hope and, and, and a sense of comfort to American Jews and a sense that, especially after the Holocaust, that Jews had a tremendous future, not only in Israel, but here in the United States. And also psychologically, uh, I think, and we're even hearing some of this rumbling now. You know, 10 years ago, we, you know, haven't been at ADL so long, many of our supporters would say to me, what are you worried about anti-Semitism? It's no longer a problem. And I would say, look, thank God, things in America have gotten so much better for Jews, but I would then go into my speech about why you shouldn't be complacent. Today, people, I even get people say, do Jews have a future in America? And I try to calm them down about that. But I do think there's a, there's a, a sense of, of something happening that is unprecedented. So the fact that there is an Israel uh, is, in my view, uh, very, very important to the psyche of Jews, even for people who don't necessarily agree with every Israeli policy and even more. So, you know, if you would ask me, could you imagine a world for Jews without an Israel, I'd say I can't at this point. I think Israel is so important for the Jewish psyche, again, recognizing that people have very different views on Israeli policy. Let's talk about international law, because in addition to calls for a ceasefire, we're hearing incessant calls for Israel to abide by international law. To what extent does Israel abide by international law? I don't consider myself an expert on international law. When you talk to someone like Tal Becker, for example, who's been a, a major Israeli player and dealing with these issues, I think there is a tremendous respect for international law, particularly the way its military folks are educated about how to conduct warfare. I think Israel makes supreme efforts to go above and beyond uh, to conduct warfare in a civil way. Do they always live up to it? Maybe not. But uh, I think there's so much hypocrisy because even in our own country, when we think back to World War II and how we, the bombing of Dresden or, or the atomic weapons, uh, when you had an enemy that was committed to your destruction, you ended up saying, we've got to have full surrender and the defeat. So I always feel that I want Israel to do its best to, to avoid civilian casualties. And of course, we know all the arguments, and they're not just arguments, it's fact that Hamas places so much, and we're seeing it almost every day now, where Hamas tunnels and others are right in the middle of civilian areas as if they benefit from civilian casualties, because that's the way to put the pressure on Israel. So I, I just think that Israel does better than most countries in, in trying to stay within international law. But could they do better? Yes, they can. Let's talk about Zionism. There seems to be a lot of confusion around the meaning of the word. What is it? And has its meaning changed over the years? So first of all, the tzionut, the Hebrew term, is a 
reference in the in the Bible to Jerusalem. That's where, where the phrase Zionism comes from. It's the, again the connection to Jerusalem and to the land of Israel, the historic thing. Look, uh, the turning point really was 1975 uh, when the Soviet-inspired UN passed the infamous resolution saying that Zionism is racism. This was part of the Soviet effort. By the way, the Soviets played a very significant role in Israel's founding. Uh, there's a book out about it which talks about how the Soviet Union, because originally they thought that uh, the socialist Jewish state would benefit them. And they worked to really, when the United States actually was stepping back from the partition plan, uh, the Soviets stepped in to try to support it to make sure that it wouldn't be abandoned. So that all changed dramatically within a year or two. Stalin turned against the Jews of, of Russia and turned against Israel. 1975, they passed the Zionism, and this was, it's not merely that that resolution was on the books until 1993 with the Oslo Accords, but it was in libraries and schools all over the world, this notion that, that Zionism is fundamentally racist. And it, it, to this day, I believe it's really undermined the, the image of Israel. After all, if you say it's racist, then does it deserve to exist? So Zionism has become a dirty word in many places. But Zionism is simply the national liberation movement of the Jewish people in their historic home. That's what Zionism is about. It's important to note that one can believe in the right of the Jewish people to a home or homeland while being extremely critical of that homeland or being extremely supportive. Yeah, for sure. And also to support the idea of a Palestinian state as well. There's nothing contradictory between those things. And again, as I say, the Palestinians had many opportunities, and maybe in the future they'll have other opportunities to have that. There should be a, a possibility for Jews to have their own independence and security, and Palestinians as well. So that's that still, I think, is a goal that at least we at ADL support. To what extent is Israel responsible for the humanitarian crisis that's happening now in Gaza? Israel had no choice but to go and try to defeat Hamas, both because of if they didn't do it, there would be more such massacres in the future, and also because its public that went through this trauma d demanded that Israel take such actions. Once it was committed to doing that, there was, and particularly because Hamas, uh, first of all, it wouldn't have happened had Hamas not done what it did in October 7th, and the civilian situation Look, the civilian situation, I would go back before October 7th. Uh, in 2005, Israel withdrew from Gaza. So people say, yeah, but look at how it controlled the borders. It only happened that way because Hamas violently took over Gaza and then began to use it as a base for rocket attacks on Israel. Had, had the Palestinians accepted the idea and start to build the state on their own, relations between Gaza and Israel could have been fine. Indeed, there were thousands and thousands of Palestinians who came to work every day in Israel for greater opportunity. And all of that was undermined by, by Hamas's uh, you know, violence and that. So it's unfortunate. And uh, I think the question going forward, and it's always everybody's talking now about the day after, how can we build a, po a positive future 
if Hamas, hopefully Hamas will be defeated and then starting a, a very different situation where hopefully the education system will be more positive as opposed to what UNRWA has been allowing to miseducate Palestinian kids and for Israel to take initiatives that can uh, work with some groups that, that can develop a positive relationship. UNRWA, the UN Relief Organization that provides yeah. uh, assistance to, uh, to Palestinians. Yeah, they have an interest in keeping these issues alive instead of looking for solutions. So there's a question in the chat that's related to this. Are there any moderate leaders within the Palestinian Authority that have the possibility of rising up and representing their people for purposes of negotiations with Israel? So over the years, there was particularly, I'm now forgetting the name, there was a Palestinian prime minister who was often referred to by some Israelis as a David Ben-Gurion. Fayyad. Yes, was Fayyad. That's right. Thank you. So, and what, what, what was it about him? What he did was he tried to do what David Ben-Gurion did in the pre-state Israel. David Ben-Gurion said, the political situation is maybe beyond our control, but what we can control is creating institutions and values within the Jewish community in the land of Israel that when that day happens, we'll be ready and prepared to have a fully developed state. That's what Fayyad was doing. Unfortunately, he didn't have a huge amount of support, but it's people like that who want to build up Palestinian life, values, education, institutions. And we need to see signs of that. And of course, the problem is, you know, in Israel, you have political opposition, but among the Palestinians, sometimes it turns to violence. So how to create that kind of society where more moderate leaders can emerge is a major challenge. And I hope the United States will play some role after this war in trying to address some of those deeper issues rather than just do it on a superficial level. Throughout our conversation, you have systematically gone through all of the different myths uh, about this, uh, about Israel, about the war. Uh, but there's one that uh, seems to keep dogging Israel, which is the accusation of genocide. How do you respond when people call what Israel is doing in Gaza a genocide? Sometimes it's genocide. Sometimes it's accusing Israel of being Nazis. Very often, this is an effort to uh, create a moral equivalence. You know, in other words, the Western world had its Nazis that actually tried to destroy the Jewish people. Now the Jews have their Nazis, have, have their own genocide. It's a kind of way to discount the terrible uh, Holocaust and all that happened uh, to the Jews. The simple fact is, uh, as it's been pointed out, look at the populations. <laughs> if, if, if Israel were trying to commit genocide, Palestinian populations in, in Gaza and the West Bank have grown significantly over the years. It's absurd on its face. You can disagree with the Israeli approach to the war, but to call it genocide is just out and out uh, distortion and, uh, and anti-Semitic, basically, uh, trying to paint the Jews as being like the Nazis and the enemies. The fact is, Hamas has openly called for genocide. They did it on October 7th, and had they had the ability, they would have murdered all the Jews in, in Israel. And they've said it themselves repeatedly. So it's a classic example of where the obvious steps to genocide are. Again, one doesn't have to agree with everything Israel does in this war, uh, but to start calling it genocide is an effort to, uh, in my view, 
uh, to rationalize what Hamas did on October 7th. So there's a question about how indiscriminate what Israel is doing in Gaza is. One of the important things is we shouldn't be taking uh, the information that's coming from Hamas uh, to uh, as being the word. I would like the Israelis to provide more information from their perspective on what casualties are. Clearly, there are many casualties. A lot of them are Hamas people. By the way, as is noted, Hamas folks don't wear military uniforms, so they may that may count as civilian deaths. But look, Israel is doing tremendous damage to uh, to the Gaza and to Hamas, and in the course of it, clearly there are civilian casualties and. And for that, we should be sorry. And uh, hopefully Israel will try to limit it. But I would not call it indiscriminate. When Israel called on all the, the Gazans in northern uh, Gaza to leave, when they give warnings before they attack a place, all of these things show it's not indiscriminate. Whether or not they're doing enough is a legitimate question. But charges of genocide, charges of indiscriminate, seems to me, are not appropriate. Hamas certainly didn't give warnings on October 7th. Well, I, yeah, I, don't, I just don't want to compare Israel to Hamas. It's a whole bit. Hamas is what it is. It's a horror. And Israel, we always want Israel to live up to high standards. And so I don't have a problem that some people are critical of certain aspects of the Israeli conflict as long as it doesn't move into those areas of complete hatred and, and lies and distortions. Talk to us about those standards. Israel is a democracy. Describe that democracy to us. What, what are those standards? Well, look, Israel is a very vibrant democracy. It has its problems. It, look, before the October 7th, the country was divided about what the government wanted to do uh, with regard to the judiciary system. Uh, but it's not a perfect democracy, but it's by far the most successful democracy and pretty close to the only one in the in a region where democracies really don't, don't flourish. Uh, and it gives opportunities to diverse groups to uh, participate. ADL spends a lot of time through our wonderful office in Jerusalem dealing with issues of social cohesion. We want to make sure that different groups are appreciated and valued, whether it's the religious groups or whether it's the Arab community or, or others. When you think about a country that is so young and that from its very first day, it had to defend itself from those who wanted to destroy it, and yet they were able to maintain a true democratic society and in integrating hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Arab world and from the Soviet Union, uh, all of these things are just, it's really, in my view, a remarkable story when, you know, when Israel celebrated 75th a while ago, which seems like ancient history now, uh, we all talked about what an amazing miracle Israel is. And I don't think we should, even if we have criticisms of this or that, I think the, the fact is that uh, when we think of where the Jewish people were at the end of World War II, and where we are today, it's it's an unbelievable story. I think that's a really good note. Uh, but I'll I'll ask you one final question, which is related, which is what gives you hope, hope for the future. What gives me hope is that despite the image of vulnerability that I've been talking about through October seventh, that 
the Jewish people uh, can defend themselves today, you know, through the state of Israel in a way that unfortunately during the Nazi period was not possible. But uh, the fact is that there is a possibility of protecting the people. Secondly, the support of the United States uh, has been remarkable. Uh, the Biden administration and the public in America, that despite all the attention paid to these demonstrations and, of course, the terrible stuff that's going on campus, that, that infamous hearing last week of the three presidents of colleges, despite many of these negatives, uh, the American people overall support Israel and understand uh, what this is about. Uh, so, and, uh, so I have faith. I have faith in America and I have faith in Israel. So that gives me great hope. This ends part two of a very special podcast version of the discussion that I had with ADL Deputy National Director Kenny Jacobson, during which we discussed many facets of the Israel-Hamas war. If you found this to be interesting and helpful, please share it widely to your networks via email and social media. As always, a big thank you to you, the listeners who tuned in to this From the Frontlines podcast. If you are not already a subscriber, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or on Spotify to ensure that you do not miss a show. Just search for From the Frontlines. And please engage in these important conversations throughout the week by following me on X, Threads, and Instagram. My X handle is at Scott A. Richmond. My Instagram and threads handle is at Scott underscore ADL. And our hashtag is finding hate for good.